knit one, purl one, three. Yeah, I never, 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 never seen anybody knitting to a black Sabbath gig. <laughs> I really, really hope it sort of all comes together because there's 10 years worth of Sabbath's history missing and 10 years of my life that's missing. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, before I start, I just want to wish you all love and health and happiness and peace. This past week with events here in Europe have been very sobering to say the least. Now, I think we're all pretty shocked that something like this could happen here in this day and age. It's not a political podcast, so I don't want to say too much, but I pray for a speedy resolution and peace. And to today's show then, I've got a a brilliant hard-rocking vocalist who found fame as the lead singer of the legendary band Black Sabbath. Now, Sabbath have had so many great singers, including Ronnie James Dio and former Deep Purple man Ian Gillen. But today's guest is the second longest-serving lead singer of the band, after Ozzy Osbourne, of course. Now, my guest fronted Sabbath for close to, well, the best part of a decade, with five studio albums and a live album too. He's been a vocalist as well on something like 75 different projects in total, and he's back now with his first solo album for a long time, and it's certainly getting great reviews. I am, of course, talking about the brilliant Tony Martin. He's got stories of Tony Iommi and Eddie Van Halen and how he felt when he was booted out of the band the first time and how he turned them down a few times before agreeing to come back. Plus, his experience behind the Iron Curtain with the group. Now, of course, he's going to bring us all the details of his new album, too. And as he's such a great guest, he's got some great stories, some fun ones. One involving uh, a granny knitting and one involving an Irish gardener. Yes. But firstly, as ever, a quick hello and some shout outs. With Tony being on this week's show, the main topic of conversation on Vintage Rock Pod social media this week surrounded the best Black Sabbath albums. What is your favourite Sabbath album and why? Here's some of the people that got in touch. Kevin Mars said, First hard rock album I ever owned, Paranoid. My older brother gave it to me, thank God, still my favourite. Paranoid was also chosen by Louis Armenti, Bob Nemechek and Jeffrey Michalak as well. I'd probably say it's my favourite too. Uh, Charlie Bass Terrazas going for Sabotage. Sean DeWolf picking Volume 4 saying it's the album I came back to the most. I love this record. Toby Jones agreeing with Sean on Volume 4 as well. Um, Andy Old went with Volume 4 as his favourite Aussie album followed by Heaven and Hell and Seventh Star. Bill McHugh threw an interesting one, Technical Ecstasy, into the ring, since Bill Ward sings one of the songs, he says. And uh, Hank Bialus, he opted for the first album. But mostly, there was a lot of love for Heaven and Hell. Kevin Mars going for that album, saying, Ronnie James Dio's presence resurrected the band, and they put out their heaviest album up to that point. Luis Rodriguez, Aliaga and Mike Norris also on the Heaven and Hell train too. Thanks to everyone who joined in on social media this week. As always, if you haven't already done so, please do check out the Vintage Rock Pod social media channels. We're talking Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's great to hear from you. Get your thoughts on everything that we share during the week as well. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod and you'll find me pretty much just about everywhere, including YouTube, where I post some of the clips from the interviews as well. And you can get to see my guests talking and saying they're fantastic stories. So give that channel a subscribe as well. And a quick mention as well, just to reflect on the sad passing of two members of the Rock family this week. Gary Brooker from Procol Harum, the... 
I suppose the mere mention makes you think of Nights in White Satin, the classic song that he co-wrote. And also to former Screaming Trees frontman who worked with many other top bands and musicians. He's got such a brilliant, distinctive voice, didn't he? Mark Lanigan, both sadly missed. Right, though, let's bring you this brilliant interview then for episode 54. He's a great laugh and very honest in what he says, and it was very much a pleasure to speak with him. Please enjoy this conversation with former Black Sabbath lead singer, Tony Martin. So in terms of yourself then, Tony, I mean, as well as being an incredible vocalist, I mean, you're a multi-instrumentalist too. The guitar, the drums, the bass, blah, 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 harmonica, but the bagpipes. I mean, how on earth? Where? Why? <laughs> because I spent some time in Scotland and I was curious yeah. and um, somebody told me, I went, wow, that's really cool. I've had, I've had a fascination with the pipes and especially the, the Irish pipes, the Ulayan pipes that doesn't have the drone note. So you have a freer you know, options to make melodies okay, and yeah. stuff than the Scottish pipes. However, you know, it's still fascinating. I was just dead curious and I spent some time, you know, learning how, to, how they work. But I'm not a master at it. That is not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do at all. Uh, no, so talking about your breakthrough then, I mean, they don't come much bigger than becoming the frontman for, for Black Sabbath. Now, it was a real leap up for you, wasn't it, from the bands you were in at the time to Black Sabbath? Now, first of all, how did you get on their radar? What was it that, that they saw and, and managed to contact you and think you're going to be the next man? Um, I had an in. My manager, Albert Chapman, he went to school with Ozzy and Tony, they grew up together and they worked together. And uh, eventually Albert became a tour manager for them in, in the early days. Albert had got us under his wing at the time. We'd got a, a publishing deal with Warner Brothers, but we were in the process of looking for um, a record deal and it fell apart. Okay. And so like, we were, Ooh, what happens now? And so Albert started mooching about and, um, he sort of gave Tony a ring and uh, spoke to their manager at the time. And he said, um, my lads, like a vase, what, <laughs> you know, who's that, you know, great singer, you know, if you're interested, let me know and I'll get him up there. Well, 1986 sort of happened with Tony doing the seventh star album with Glenn Hughes. And, um, they had some problems with Glenn and I don't know what it was. But Glenn went missing for some reason. I don't know where he went. But they put me on standby and said, we might have a gig for you. And I was like, fuck off. I can't sing like Glenn Hughes. Nobody can sing like Glenn Hughes. Only Glenn Hughes can sing like Glenn Hughes. I was really, really scared. Okay, well, just, you know, learn a few of the songs and stuff like that. And they sent me the tape of the album before it was called Black Sabbath. In fact, it was, and if you remember, it was Tony Iommi's solo album in the beginning. And they insisted it be called Black Sabbath. So they sent me this tape and let, told me to learn some songs, which I couldn't even get close to Glenn's voice, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then they found Glenn and they said, it's okay, we found him, stand down. Oh, I was pleased about that, actually. <laughs> after that, then they got Regulan, and then he left to join Blue Murder with John Sykes. So they called me again and said, you better come like for a, a demo, like an interview or a, an audition, you know? So. Then I started to worry again because I wasn't sure what, I mean, I've come from nowhere, like you said. Yeah. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So anyway, uh, they wouldn't give me any songs. They said, come to the studio in London. We'll run you through something and let's see how you get on. Well, I'm a nobody. Like at this point, I'm just like, 
what are they doing? You know, asking somebody like me, it's like from nowhere. But the band were going through hard times and it, it was at a pretty low ebb and they were finding it difficult, you know, to get people to work with them and they've been, you know, criticised for lots of stuff. So by the time I joined, you know, it wasn't so bad to sort of step in there. But I went down for the session anyway and did The Shining. Yep. That was it. They gave me one song. <laughs> <laughs> and then two days later, they called me back and says, right, you've got the job. Uh, you've got a week to finish the album. And I went, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> so back I went down to London. <laughs> sort of walked into the studio. I've never been in a studio like that before. But as it happened, um, the Eternal Idol, or the Eternal Idiot, as we call it, um, was already written. Yep. And all the melodies were already there. So actually, that was good for me. Yeah. Um, because they said, don't change anything. Don't try and write any lyrics or anything. Just do what is already done. Because they'd already spent like a year in Montserrat writing it. And, and according to Jeff Nichols, he said they couldn't really change it after that. They'd spent so much time and money on it. It was like written in stone. So that was cool. So just do what what's there. It turned out all right, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was like a, that, God, that's over with. And then like almost instantly I was on the road and I was playing in a band that had carpet on the stage. <laughs> I've never been in a band with carpet on the stage. What the fuck? You know, only really big bands have carpet on the stage. So it was like a, a complete sudden immersion in a world that I knew nothing about. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And obviously the pressure's off where you were told you had the week and you had to do it that way. There was no, there was no putting your stamp or anything on it at the time. But in terms of that, how did the dynamics work then? Because you were a bit younger than the rest of the guys, weren't you, going into the band? A bit. I was 12 <laughs> years younger. <laughs> um, I was 12 years younger than them which was difficult and that never left me. We didn't have the same circle of friends. I mean, they were hanging out with Ian Gillen and Brian May and I'm only out with Fred down the road. <laughs> uh, so the gap was always there and I found that really hard work. I couldn't communicate with them on, on any similar level. They already had like 20 years experience ahead of me and um, they were older than me and just everything was you know, that far in the future, always, you know, right through my tenure with, with South, I kind of got used to it, but I never solved it. It never, it never, they never became, you know, best friends. They were best friends with each other, but it was like, I, I guess it was like, I say this often, it must've been like having a younger brother that you don't want tacking along, but they liked my voice and I was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it kind of worked out. It worked indeed. And just a quick question. You mentioned it there. I've heard you say it a few times, actually, the, the eternal idiot. Um, you've said that a few times. Where does that come from? Because I've, I've heard you call the, the eternal idol the eternal idiot a few times. So where, where, where does that come from? We did the eternal idol tour. And when we came back, the first place I got dropped off at was Tony Iommi's house. He had a gardener. He was an Irish guy. And we walked through the gate and started walking up the pathway towards his house. And this gardener was this, and he shouts out, Tony, you know what album? You turned the idiots. I fucking love it. <laughs> and he said, I said, did you just call the album Eternal Idiot? <laughs> he said, fucking hell. Eternal Idiot. Anyway, it stuck. 
You know what happened? Turtle Lady is a fucking love it. <laughs> well, endorsed by the Irish Gardener. There you go. That should have been on the front of the album. Um, so, yeah, so the first album then, um, the pressure's off. You went in, you recorded what was there. What did you do then when you set about the next album? I mean, how did you go about putting your stamp on it? Oh, well, that's different now because um, I, I was told that I could write yeah. my own melodies and lyrics. So by the time it came round to doing that, I'd sort of got, an understanding of what this thing was. So it was then it was about, oh, what, where, where do I go with it? I'm, and I had, there was lots of options. I mean, what I didn't want to do is just copy what had been done before. And the obvious ones, the Aussie thing and the Ronnie thing, both of them were very successful. And so unfortunately for me, I've got a power voice. And so people tend to um, think of me as a kind of Ronnie sort of singing, you know, just because of the power that's in my voice. But I didn't want to copy what he did. So I sort of came across this idea of doing themes. Headless Cross was English history, more or less. The plague and stuff like that. Tyr was uh, Viking mythology and stuff like that. And I had this thought in my head that, well, actually, you could go anywhere with this. Like, you know, the shamans of American Indians. You could do the samurai of the... The Japanese, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, kind of thing. All of them have good and evil elements to them. So I was thinking along that line, and and I sort of quickly got into Headless Cross, which is the English history thing. And the story really was that in the plague, the days of the plague, they would paint a cross on the door. That was like a great a great subject for me. So um, I studied it and just got into it. And, and then I found that my love of words and uh, melodies yes. just really lent well to the music that they was given me. I think they thought there was a bit too much death in it. I mean, there was one bit where um, Cozy Powell was playing drums in the, uh, in the session and he suddenly stopped halfway through the session. He went, do you think there's enough death in this one? I think it needs more death. What's it called again? <laughs> when death calls. Oh, yeah. And you're talking there about um, the, the riffs they provide and the music they provide and things like that. I mean, let's just quickly talk about Tony. I mean, he is quite rightly regarded as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. What was it like working with, with someone as incredible as him? Surprisingly easy. You know, he's, uh, he's a great guy. He's on top of his game. I mean, you know, I love people that are on top of the game. Like, I, d I don't get deals by it at all. I just think it's fantastic when you know, somebody's doing the thing they do best. And um, he made it really easy. And and I know that that's the way he works um, uh, because of other uh, people and other things that he's, he's done. Um, he generally just riffs up, up, you know, he plays, he starts playing and just keeps going until somebody latches on to something. Oh, I like that bit. Well, at the time, I sort of bought myself a eight-track tape recorder thing, and so I used, when we used to go to the writing sessions, I just set this thing up and um, put it into record and uh, recorded everything. And then I uh, said, Dip up, go away a bit. I'm, I'll just I'll have a play through these things, and I'd sort of select sections and put them together, and then sing on it, and then give them a take and say, what do you think of that? So um, it sort of went like that, really, really quite easy, comfortable, you know, to work with. And I found that now with Scott, that I'm just working on Thorns, he's, he works the same sort of way, just jams. 
incredible, you know, and it, has, it reminds me of when, uh, you know, I used to work with Tony Iommi. He's a very prolific, easygoing sort of guitarist, you know. It was real easy to work with him. And I, I never, ever really had a problem with Tony, you know, working with him. So, yeah, all good. Fantastic stuff. Um, and just quickly as well, I mean, something that you guys did, which was one of the first things, was was recorded while well, playing behind the Iron Curtain. You were one of the first bands to go over there after uh, that kind of band lifted in 89. I mean, what was the reaction like from the fans and the people that you met in the country at that time? Oh, it's mad. They didn't know how to behave, really. We played two places like Moscow and Leningrad. Moscow was like the Olympic Stadium, um, 40,000 people or something was in it. And we were doing two shows a day, one in the afternoon, one on the night, but one and a half weeks or something. <laughs> that was really intense. Um, but they were all seated. And the first row was about, I don't know, 20, 30 feet from the front of the stage. So it looked a bit vacuous in, at the front, but we sort of learned how to sort of, you know, be there with them sort of thing. Yeah. And um, a, a funny story about that, actually. The Moscow gig, the dignitaries were invited, the mayor, the mayor's oh, wife, wow. the mayor's mother, the kids, you know, the whole entourage. And I heard <laughs> playing Iron Man, you know Iron Man, right? Yeah, yeah. Iommi comes over to me and digs me in the ribs. He says, look down there. It's down where? It's down there. Look down there. <laughs> our, our grandma was sat in the front row knitting. <laughs> so Iron Man. <laughs> very good boys, y'all. Knit one, pearl one, three. I've never seen anybody knitting to a black Sabbath gig. <laughs> and we had girls' school on with us. Yes. Then we went to St. Petersburg, Leningrad, and then they were mad, absolutely crazy fans. They were just like throwing stuff because they didn't really know that you shouldn't let people into a stadium with bottles. Yeah. And glassware, you know, sort of thing. So they were throwing these things at us. And, and girl school, the um, guitarist, she got missed by about two inches with a bottle that came towards it. She just saw it as the light caught it. And she managed to duck out the way it buried into a speaker cabinet behind her. And they had this woman that was like really smartly dressed, like in a tight pencil skirt with, with high heels. And she'd come on the stage, what's she doing? And she would walk up to the microphone and take the microphone and say, what she was actually saying was, don't throw things at the band. Not, not good. We will cancel the show. Don't throw things at the band. And then she would walk off. And then they'd start throwing shit again. And then she'd come back on the stage. I'm talking to not throw things at the band. Not good. Do not throw things at the band. Fuck me. This is like getting daft here. But um, the reception was great. And, you know, they were nice to us. I mean, we... They actually threatened to pay us in tractors. <laughs> they said, well, how about we pay you in tractors? <laughs> we give you 20 tractors. You take them back to the UK, sell them, and you keep the money. Now, just give us the fucking money. <laughs> it was quite an eye-opener, really, for sure. We had um, quite a journey there. So, yeah, moving on to your, to your first solo album then, um, Back Where I Belong. Um, you'd left Sabbath at this point, um, difficult transition it was something you weren't expecting at all um but in terms of that album that you came up with i mean you worked with some incredible people on that one as well didn't you yeah once i'd been fired from south i mean that was just a total surprise i wasn't yeah. expecting didn't see that coming at all i wanted nothing to do with it <laughs> i wanted nothing to do far away from heavy metal music as i could get yeah and so i sort of had this idea at the time we were still sort of coming off that like 80s rock yeah. Type of sound. And so I thought, oh, I'll go that way. 
Um, so I sort of made uh, some soundtracks for myself, and it, it, it was kind of okay. It never really flew, but the people on it were great. You know, but Brian May was on there. He sort of did a solo for me and drummer from Saxonton as well. And, um, yeah, it, it was good. And I actually got to work with a gospel choir, which was like, it's an incredible experience when you stood in the room and they're belting it out. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> You know, just stood in the middle of these voices, like, oh, and they're just enjoying themselves and dancing and <laughs> just really cool. So I, I did think that that's the way I was going to go for a while. But then they asked me back again. In fact, whilst I was doing the solo album, Tony was uh, speaking to me and saying, can you come back? Said, no, actually, I'm, yeah. I'm doing a solo album. Oh, all right. And then, then he called me again a bit later on. Said, can you come back now? I said, what, what's the problem? He said, oh, we're having problems with Ronnie and um, it's, not going, it's not going down well. Again, I don't know what the problem was. already didn't sort of tell me what that was. But mm -hmm. um, I did go, actually, and I spent some time with them looking at the tracks that they were working on at the time. And um, I, I couldn't really sing Ronnie's stuff. That was just too obvious. So I said, look, I, if I was to do this, I'd need to rewrite it, you know, and, and do it my own way. And they said, oh, I've got time to do that. I said, okay, the best thing to do, carry on with Ronnie, and then maybe we can talk after. And that's kind of what happened. That's how I got back into it, really. That is how you got back into it. The next album was Cross Purposes, wasn't it? And just a quick story from that. I mean, Eddie Van Halen um, popped up. Uh, he was involved in one of the songs on that album, wasn't he? I mean, how, how did that go? What was it like meeting Eddie and working with him? Evil Eye, he played on. Yeah. In fact, he... He sort of put the wrist together, kind of. But uh, I was shocked that was. I mean, I didn't know he was coming. Nobody told me. <laughs> wow. So what happens in comes Eddie Van Hair? What the fucking hell is he doing here? Hello. I was just going to go. I told him. I'm only doing. Oh, I'll do Fucking hell. Van Halen had toured with Sabbath years before, and Tony became friends with it. Of course. So when they were in the area, he said, come on, have a jam, come on, come on, come up, meet the lads. You yeah, tell me first, let's don't fucking let him walk in. <laughs> but then he was just, he was great, you know, very um, determined. No, no, what are you going to do now? Are you going to do something there? Yeah, I'm, I'm on it, I'm on it. But great, and um, it went well, and I recorded it. So I have that session um, with Eddie and Hannah and... I was thinking that I did tell Tony recently that if he wanted to use it for anything, let me know and I'll give him all the tracks that I've got. But uh, nothing came with that, so I don't know what they're doing with that. But um, yeah, that was an, a, a nice but strange surprise. Indeed. And you mentioned that, uh, you've, you've mentioned to Tony you've got those tapes and things like that. You mean, you put up something about a month ago, didn't you, saying that you got a call from Tony's manager and, and it seems like a, a deal for your era of Sabbath albums could be coming back to light. What's happening with that? Um, I don't really know. I don't know a date. And I don't know what they're going to put in it because they said we can't do anything new under the Black Sabbath name, but we could do something that we did at the time, which I don't get because if we found a song that we hadn't used and now we release it, it's new. So I don't know how that works, but um, uh, we, I'm still waiting to find out. And I have spoken briefly to Tony Iommi recently and he, want, he does want to get like have a chat. So... I'll probably be able to find out more then, but at the moment, I'm like, same as you, I don't really know. No, but it'd be, it'd be fantastic, especially for the Sabbath fans, because it, it's a set of albums which are really almost impossible to get hold of, aren't they? Oh, they are impossible, because it's not on sale. They don't have a record deal for it. Obviously, if it's not on sale, 
you won't pick it up anywhere. And also you don't get any royalties. If it's not being sold, you don't get any royalties. So I don't yeah. get a penny from Black Sabbath at all. Um, because it's not, it's not on sale, but, um, they want to re-release it. And, uh, I really, really hope it sort of all comes together because there's 10 years worth of yeah. Sabbath's history missing and 10 years of my life that's missing. And I sometimes go, I was there, wasn't I? Yeah, <laughs> and you talk about the, the the part of Sabbath that's missing. I mean, let's just for a second stop and think about Black Sabbath. I mean, Ozzy, Ronnie, Ian Gillan, Glenn Hughes, and yourself, and you are the second longest lead singer amongst that company of of incredible performers. I mean, how does that make you feel? I mean, I saw your eyes when I said it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's just a so an honor. It's a um, a pleasure. It's all of those things. But you you have to quickly remove yourself from the fan part and get involved in the job part. And so it becomes normal then to be hanging out with these people and, and to be working with them. You can't go around, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't remember Russia once I was, it suddenly dawned on me where, where I was. And I was looking, I was on the side of the stage looking at, I know he was doing a solo or something. And I looked across like, Tony Iommi, Cozy Powell, Neil Murray, me. No, wait. Tony Iommi, Cozy Powell. Ha, ha, ha. It, like, it took me that long to sort of do one on me. But then, like, you go, okay, 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 get rid of that. That's got to go. The whole fan thing has to go. And so then when you sort of start getting involved in the job, then it, it's easy you know, to sort of work with the guys and that. Then you're on more or less on the same level. There for the same reason, to do the same thing, you know. Uh, to entertain people and play them what you you known for, so um, it was good. Um, I do see the names sometimes and go, oh, "That's cool." <laughs> but you know, the young brat from Birmingham, you know, the young brat from Birmingham that conquered the world, and now you're back with a, a brand new album that came out, didn't it, last month? And um, before we go any further, the one thing that struck me straight away um, was it coincidence? Was it planned? The fact that the tracks are all in alphabetical order. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, because we work on computers now, uh, we we don't you really use tape machines and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and some diehard people still do, but we use like Cubase or Pro Tools or you know those things. Yeah. Um, well, when you store your files, uh, you put them in a folder, and it, it puts them in alphabetical order. Ah. And it took me honestly, it took me like five years before I noticed, and I went. Fuck me, they're in alphabetical order. <laughs> That's weird. And, but it worked. So I left it. And then I, what, what happened was we started, because it's in alphabetical order, I started working on them in that order. Uh -huh. And so then it sounded really good. And I went, because it used to be a skill, or, or we used to have somebody at the record label that would set the track list. Well, the computer done it for me. <laughs> wow. That nobody else has ever done that, I don't think. Not as obvious as that. Like I said, the first thing I noticed when I was sent it, it was like, oh, wow, it literally was in alphabetical order. Yeah, if you've got uh, OCD or something, it's your dream album, mate. It's like, yeah. you know. <laughs> and speaking of dream albums, I mean, as I said, it came out last month. It's been getting rave reviews, and, and it's not just me blowing smoke here. I mean, I'm just going to read out a couple if you don't mind. I mean, Blabbermouth said, Thorns is a monstrous album in terms of songwriting, instrumentation, and, of course, the focal point that is Tony Martin. You've got Metal Roll saying, amazing new music from Tony Martin, and Sonic Expanse is saying, this stands as one of the most unique offerings to carry his name, and definitely among the strongest notches in his expansive belt. Now, that must be so... <laughs> that must be so gratifying to hear. 
It is. Um, you know, I, I've lost contact with all these people. You know, for all of the faces changed. I've been out of it, you know, for so long. I've been in the studio for the past 25 years. That's where my group took me, uh, rather than as a band on the road. I started writing and recording. So I've been out of the arena for quite a long time. So reintroducing myself now uh, to these um, magazines and, and um, you know, publications and stuff, it, it, it's almost like a new experience again. And it's great to hear them say that. Um, obviously, we don't know. When you write a song, you have no idea if somebody's going to like it or not. In fact, I've tried to get one of them taken off, which was Your Damnation. And the album, uh, the uh, label says, no, no, keep it on, keep it on. Are you sure about this? It's weird. I said, yeah, but it's good. <laughs> okay, whatever. I was going to ask you about that. It's a bit of a step change, isn't it, towards the end of the album? Um, what was what was the deal behind that then? I mean, how come it's so different? Um, I mean, if I can just cite it slightly, uh, sure. there are a few different tracks in, a, in acoustic unplugged stuff. Mm -hmm. and they sort of had a heavy version, but... Well, because me being a guitar player, the first thing I do when I'm writing is pick up an acoustic guitar. Um, and so I was playing these things. And, well, it sounds better with acoustic guitar. So already I'd started the album before it was called Thorns and it was going to be called Book of Shadows. And it was that that I was sort of pursuing at the time. And then three years after that, when I met Scott, and it turned into this heavy thing. So I'd got these acoustic tracks, including Damnation, and I thought, oh, shit, what do I do with that now? So then I sort of worked on it a bit and thought, you know what? It could. <laughs> you know, if you're, like, feeling mischievous enough, that could go in, you know, in amongst all that heavy stuff. And what happened when the computer reset the names in alphabetical order, that came right before Thorns. Yep. Wow, because now that gave a real break in between the music to set up Thorns. Yes. <laughs> it's get better and better. So I'm just thinking, I don't know how this is happening. I don't know what's happening here. This is just like really weird. <laughs> so I, I, I followed it and I let it lie. And um, it is weird. But then again, it does a great job of setting up thorns and creating a thing. It's a thing. It's just a thing. But it's like, I really like it. Indeed. And it comes from, uh, I think, my favourite track on the album, Run Like the Devil. Um, it's just so upbeat and fast and I, I love it. And then that one coming in afterwards, it does, it just it kind of tweaks your interest straight away because it is so different. I just love the way it happens. Yeah, and this is like an album, like albums sort of used to be. And I remember, yes. I can remember having an album and there'd be one weird track on it. And now you've either got to go to the record player, lift the needle up, put it down somewhere else, <laughs> you should get it wrong, or you've got to let it run through the track and just go, yeah, 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 la, 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 what a little bit that, until you get to the next song that you like. Sometimes what would happen is that you'd sort of let this, the, the duff track run through enough to go, actually, you know, that, that track's not so bad. And it was how people learned about albums and, um, you know, the, the whole band thing, what the, yeah. the thinking. But honestly, uh, that's what it's like inside my head. It's a mess up there. Uh, that's what I'm like, and I am really pleased that I allowed myself to put all of this stuff on the on the album. Scott was a bit amused. What what was that? Bear with me. It'll be all right, honest. Yes, yes. You mentioned Scott there. I mean, that meeting of the two of you came years ago, didn't it? Through Facebook. So, so talk to me about Scott and, and how you two work together. Then he's a nice guy. He's very humble, and um, his playing is amazingly deep. Such a depth to. The riffs and stuff that he writes, like I said earlier, it reminds me of Tony Naomi's. But uh, he just keeps churning them out. He's just sent me another 39 
tracks to work with. Fuck it out, mate. Um, <laughs> so he was just like super keen. And he started send, sending me stuff to listen to. So I got in touch with him and said, do you want me to sing on this stuff? And he went, yeah, man. I, I said, well, let me have a go at something. I'll chop it up and make it Tony Martin if I did. And then like, I'll send it back and see what you think. He was out of the moon. And that was as the world burns. Well, the way he writes, he's just relentless. Like, he just keeps going. And so I had to cut it up and put a verse here, a chorus there, like a bridge back into a chorus type thing. I had to set it so that I could then sing on it. And I've had to do that with all of them. Um, but he loves it. And then I said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, man, brother, yeah, that's, that's cool with me. No, I mean it. Don't tell anybody. Said, because if we can get this together, we could make like an album out of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that'd be really cool, yeah. So we sort of slowly picked at it and worked it out, and uh, we ended up with the album that you hear now. I'm really pleased with how it's turned out. And like I said, I'm, I'm really pleased that I allowed myself to put all those different sounds on the Book of Shadows. My daughter's on there. My son is also on there. Uh, it's a good album for the right time. Everybody's gagging to start rocking again. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it sort of came out the beginning of this year, obviously, and it was well received so far anyway. Absolutely. And then you mentioned it's, it's just come out. It's, it's called Thorns. What's the best way of getting hold of it, then, Tony? There's lots of different ways. At the moment, uh, the most direct route is by going to the labels and, and order it from them. There has been some um, issues with the COVID thing because uh, going across the borders, they all had different COVID uh, restrictions in place. And so that sort of put a right blush on it uh, just to get the speed of you know getting it out there. But the, it's in the hands of the distributors. So, and it, it went from the factory... It didn't go to the record label. It went from the factory to the distributors. So they've got it. Just have to be patient and it'll sort of come. I'm doing a few signed albums. I'm signing some, a handful of those people. I haven't got many, but we'll do a bit of that. There's two labels. There's Dark Star in, in America who are licensing this from the main label, which is Battle God there in Australia. The thought was that, you know, to have two labels working either side of the world would be beneficial. I also like having the two different takes on the marketplace. They each know their thing. They they don't necessarily like the way each other works, but having them both involved has been really cool. Also, I put different artwork on for each of the yeah. labels, so that gives things for people to collect, you know, along the way. Oh, I've got this one. Oh, I've got that one. Where'd you get that one from? You know, that sort of thing. Lots of lots of things to talk about, which is what I wanted, really. And I'm hoping, because we can't really tour this, I, I just can't get it planned. So at the moment, promotion is like everything, and, and uh, this is where we, we need you guys. I mean, you know, uh, we really need you to, uh, to tell people what we're doing. Thank you for doing your bit. It's very important to us, and we, we don't take it lightly. So um, all being well, we'll keep it trundling along for a bit. And then um, the vinyl album should come out later in the year. They wanted to do a vinyl album, but there was too many tracks in in time. Uh, and they said, you'll have to take some off. I'm not taking it off. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Just take a fucking track. What the fuck? <laughs> so, um, they said, well, there's only one other option. You've got to write some more tracks and we'll do a double vinyl. Okay, mm. this I like. So um, 
me and Scott, and the reason why is just certainly another 39 tracks is that we're in the process of writing some more so that we can make a double album sort of later on. Ah, exciting stuff. Yeah. I've even had a request, and this is sounds stupid, but I've even had a request to do a run of audio cassettes. Wow. <laughs> there's a small diehard group of people that still use them and love it. I just think it's really cool. It's <laughs> very cool. And it would be another story to talk about with the album. So, you know, I'm looking at that as well. Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Tony. Uh, best of luck with the album um, Thorns. Look forward to hearing the, the extra tracks that's going to come out with the vinyl. And if there's 39 tracks that um, Scott sent you, we look forward to another follow-up album to come in the future. Indeed. Um, we've already sort of spoken about this um, unreasonably to think if we come up to this year, why not write another album? And then, like, next year, two, two albums. Both, yeah. And so um, we're taking our time. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get out there at some point with one or two albums, depending on how, see how it goes. Indeed. We look forward to it. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Tony. Best of luck with everything. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Tony Martin there. If you're a Black Sabbath fan, then please go back and check out a couple of other interviews I did previously. Bev Bevan was a Black Sabbath drummer in the 80s. I spoke with him on episode 40, while another drummer, Carmine Apice, was Ozzy Osbourne's drummer for a time. And boy, does he tell a great story of how he was treated by Sharon Osbourne on the, the interview I spoke with him on. Definitely check that out. It's on episode 43. As for Tony Martin, then, if you are a hard rock fan and you're listening to this, you probably are, definitely get on to his new album called Thorns. It's been getting great reviews by the music press, not just me saying it, and you can check that out on all the usual outlets. Go and support that if you can, please. Right now, it's the time of the show where I give you my top fives. If it's the first time you've listened, then basically I choose my favourite five songs from an artist, usually connected with who I've interviewed this week. So... It's obviously going to be Black Sabbath tracks. Now, remember, this is my personal favorite list. It's the songs that I enjoy the most. It's subjective, so it's okay for you to disagree. I'm not claiming it as the definitive top five. So here you go. My favorite five songs from Black Sabbath, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from Volume 4 from 1972. It's the best song on that album. It rocks hard, but also has that kind of jam-like experimental feel to it. It was a favourite of John Bonham and Frank Zappa, which can't be bad either. At number five is Supernaut. At four is my first song selection from the brilliant Paranoid album released in 1970. In fact, it's the album Closer. I so wanted this to be higher on my list, but I just couldn't move it ahead of the three which are above it. So it's the highest fourth place I've ever had. It's a groovy number, if that's possible. A heavy, hard-rocking, bluesy buster of a song. It's brilliant. And number four is Fairies Wear Boots. At 
Three is a Ronnie James Dio track from 1980. Right from the off, it grabs you with Tony's and Geezer's unison riff and then drops away to reveal Ronnie's monstrous vocal power before building back for the chorus. And as for the brilliant in-your-face climax leading up to that ending, well, superb. At three is Heaven and Hell. My number two is another song from the Paranoid album. In fact, it's the group's biggest single, reaching number four in the UK on release in 1970. It's a proper adrenaline-rushing, relentless riff with Ozzy on top form. It needs no introductions. At two is Paranoid. And at number one is the epic track, also from Paranoid. It's the ultimate anti-war song with a heavy-ass riff and Bill Ward's drumming as rapid fire as it ever is. It takes many twists and turns on its journey, but it's a journey I could do time and time again. My favourite Black Sabbath track, the number one on my list, is the brilliant War Pigs. As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! There you go, my favourite five songs from Black Sabbath. So many other great songs I didn't mention. Iron Man, Children of the Grave, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, NIB, Symptom of the Universe, and many more as well. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Let me know your top fives. You can drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or go to the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook page and find the post that I'll put up during the week, and you can comment below that and let me know who you think should have been on that list. I'll give you a mention on next week's episode as well. Now, if this is your first listen, then make sure you go back and listen to some of the other fantastic interviews from previously in the series and remember to subscribe to vintage rock pod on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss any new episodes that drop they usually come out every monday although there are some bonus sneaky ones that come out every now and again as well please do check out the back catalog as i said brilliant big name guests on there too well that's it for this episode then thank you so much for listening until episode 55 remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock just tell them my music is better than yours take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.